นะโมทัสสะภะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะวะโตอะหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะเราเห็นว่าในยุคนี้มีความสามารถมากที่จะ
get trained on the secular level and, or on the physical level. There's all sorts of opportunities for getting trained physically and, and uh, as I said, with uh, in school and university and uh, online, we can learn a lot about the world we live in and become very skilled on that level. But when it comes to the spiritual dimension... You know, how well trained are we? How well trained? How how good is our cultivation? And I think if if we're well trained spiritually, then we're healthy spiritually, which means that we can deal with the vicissitudes of life, the the uncertainty of life, the unfairness of life, the disappointments of life. We don't get shocked by things. Uh, we get shocked when actually we've been telling ourselves uh, stories. And we've been believing in the stories and then suddenly we get shocked because we find out the story is not true anymore. We can get surprised by all sorts of things, but getting shocked is something else. So, uh, I would suggest that if, we, if our spiritual training is well developed, then we're in harmony with life, we're in tune with life and... We have the skills, which means that even when things don't go my way, we can meet that and accommodate it. So Ajahn Chah clearly um, was dedicated to supporting people in their training on this dimension, on this level. Also in this verse is interesting where he he uses this word internalize. Uh, that uh, we internalize the practice so that we can practice anywhere. And again, this applies in the uh, conventional world. And, uh, you go to see a, a medical practitioner, somebody who's really skilled in medicine. Well, it means they've gone through a lot of training and training procedures until they've internalized the principles. Yeah, I remember when I was very young, I was, I was taught sterile dressing technique. And if you've done this, you, you know, there's a certain sequence. You've got these instruments here, and you've got these instruments here, and then you've got the wound here. And you don't want the infection to get on the wound. And so you go through these stages, and you use this instrument to pick up that instrument. You put that one down, you pick up that one, and, you do that, and that makes sure that the wound doesn't get infected. And that's the technique. Doom, 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 doom. The spirit is to avoid the infection. In the beginning, you've really got to rigorously attend to the technique in these stages, and you cut any corners and you, you, know, you fail the exam, you get disqualified. It's not okay. And, you know, <clears throat> or any, any other craft, you're learning a craft, and if you're in an apprenticeship with a craftsman who is sharing their skills, and inevitably you get taught the, some pretty mundane, boring things, you've got to do this repetition thing. You've got to do this repetition, repetition, over and over again. You've got to learn the structures. And sometimes, in the beginning, it can be quite tedious. But what's the point of this? The point of it is to internalise the meaning, internalise the spirit, internalise the skill. And in the beginning, we haven't got that. In the beginning, we've got to depend on the form. And if you're too smart and you try to <clears throat> do shortcuts before you're really ready, 
well, in medical practice, you can end up risking an infection. Once you're really skilled, maybe there are some shortcuts. Maybe there are some shortcuts that you can take. Once we've internalised the principle, and the spirit is alive within us, and so it is in the, in the spiritual life that the, some of the training structures that um, all of us have to go through in our meditation, counting the breathing, I mean, how tedious is that? I mean, 1 to 10, 10 to 1, 1 to 9, 9 to 1, 1 to 8, 8, 8 yeah, yeah. hours, weeks, months, maybe years, yeah. counting your breathing, checking your body posture, yeah. walking meditation, Bringing awareness back into the body. Well, I like thinking. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much you like thinking. You know, thinking didn't work. It got us into a big mess. We got out of balance. (laughs) Not just us individually. Look at the world. What a mess. Well, it's not a lack of education. There's some seriously educated people out there, but they overthink life. They're not balanced. They're not embodied. They're not grounded. And there's many other things as well that are out of balance. You know, walking meditation takes a lot of effort. So I don't like walking. I like to just sit and dream. <laughs> that's not meditation. That's called dreaming. We're going to learn the skill of meditation. We want to internalize the principle. We've got to go through this repetition, this boring thing. So this that Ajahn Chah is mentioning here. We internalize the practice so that we can live anywhere. We can live under any circumstances and learn from whatever comes to us. Agreeable, that's great, that's nice, but sometimes it's not going to be agreeable. Sometimes it's going to be thoroughly disagreeable. You're going to wake up in the morning, and you're going to read the news, and you say, what? Can we practice with that? Can we meet that? Can we receive the news? Can we receive our reaction? Or do we default to our habit of clinging, the contraction of awareness, and then the energy goes all up into our head, and then we overthink again, back into the same predicament of making stories and believing them and then the drama of blaming other people for what's going wrong so we have this training we have this path of cultivation we're fortunate to have had these teachings laid out for us and offered to us but now it does take a lot of effort and and really honing down the skill and maybe we develop the skill to a certain level and then we meet a an obstruction and we can't go any further, well, then we've got to learn the skill of waiting. One of the principles of spiritual life that we have to train in is is, um, patient endurance. And one of the things about patient endurance is, you know you can't learn patient endurance when you're having a good time. You can't learn patient endurance when you're having a good time. So the other one is that When we're having a bad time, that is the optimum time for learning this essential spiritual quality. Patient endurance is essential. Sooner or later we will come up to an obstruction. Anybody and everybody who's ever entered the spiritual journey will have come across obstructions. And how do we meet them? Well, if we haven't got this particular tool in our toolkit, if we haven't got this particular skill honed down, then we're going to really struggle. We're going to... You know, maybe we enjoy making progress. It is nice to see that, you know, I'm growing up and becoming a little bit more responsible and a little less angry and maybe a little better concentration and, you know, maybe a bit more kind. And that's nice. But what happens when you, you don't see any progress anymore and just this 
hit this wall every time you come to sit meditation. We could give up. That's not, that's a bit disappointing, really. We could keep hitting our head against the brick wall. That hurts. It may really cause damage. Or we could exercise the skill, the skill of patient endurance. And part of the skill of patient endurance is is recognizing the difference between patient endurance and bitter endurance. We might think that we're exercising patient endurance, gritting our teeth and furrowed brow and shoulders up round our ears and say, well, yeah, Buddha said patient endurance, I guess I'll do this patient endurance thing. That's not what the Buddha said. The Buddha didn't say that. That's called bitter endurance. That's really unhelpful. Patient endurance requires kindliness and a willingness above anything, a willingness to meet this moment just as it is with all the feeling of obstructedness and limitation and disappointment. It's like this and to receive it. So again, to look at other activities that human beings engage in. Training takes time. Like if you 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 want to learn to go surfing, you know, oh yeah, get a board, you got a good board and you want to go surfing. Well, the first thing that the person teaching you does is you put the board down on the sand and you lie down on the board on the sand. You know, that's not much fun, is it? But you've got to learn to paddle. If you don't know how to paddle, what's the point of getting out there? You just get wrecked. You've got to learn to paddle, and you've got to learn how to stand. Where do you stand? You start standing here, and then you move there. And you know, the training in surfing, or the training in skiing. You know, if you want to, you know, do some slopes and have some fun, you need to know how to bend the knees. You know, and if your knees are not in good shape, if you don't have the right muscles, if you don't have the right muscles, you don't want to take on so many serious slopes. So training in anything takes time, takes skill, and we can use these uh, examples of other areas of our life to to reflect, well, what about my spiritual training? Becoming adept at these virtues like patient endurance, like like kindliness, and then like wise reflection, learning how to use our thinking capacity we got taught to think very early on in life. We got you know, taught that thinking is like a holy cow we're supposed to worship. And, and we, you know, we just do this thinking all the time to the point where it becomes compulsive and we can't stop it. Become identified as thinking. Identified as our thinking mind. The movement become, of our mind becomes our identity. And probably some of us know how painful that is. You just can't stop thinking. Uh, Bad education, at least spiritually speaking. It's uh, really unfortunate. So we need to learn how to engage the thinking capacity, not demonise the thinking capacity. Sometimes that happens. You know, if we're somebody who overthinks everything and compulsively thinking, and then we come across Buddhist meditation and you go on YouTube and there's this, this groovy teacher telling you how to go into bliss and... You know, develop jhanas and, you know, just going on about how beautiful it is. And you, you just get intimidated by this guy's inflated ideas of the spiritual life. And, uh, well, it might work for you, but you know, just killing off the thinking mind, you know, that's, that's only one way of relating to it. We can also just step back and listen to the space in which the thinking is taking place. 
or visualize the space in which they're thinking. And personally, I prefer listening. You know, like you listen to a thought. You, know, you say, well, I'm going to think a thought about this green carpet here. And here we go. Ready? You're going to think about green carpet. But before you think, you watch. Actually, I haven't thought it yet. I'm about to think it. There's silence. There's a space. Well, that's interesting. I just thought there was thinking. There's not just thinking. There is silence. And if we can learn to identify the silence, then we can allow the thinking. Thinking is great. Well, a great tool that human beings have. We, if we don't have it, we're seriously disadvantaged. Yeah. But to discipline the thinking, to learn how to use this tool in our toolkit, again, it takes time, takes gentleness, takes patience. And then we recognize if we can start to wisely reflect on things with restraint, with interest, not just because some book or teacher told us, you want to contemplate this, you say, well, no, actually, you come up against your own particular conundrum, you know, your brick wall, and instead of just hammering away at a meditation object and trying to make your mind peaceful, you, say, well, you can think. What is this? Well, you're interested, obviously, because it's obstructing everything. Interest is a great source of energy. So you're interested, and then we bring this wonderful facility we have for thinking about something, but in a conscious way. Now, the difference between contemplation and proliferation, mental proliferation, mental proliferation, you can't stop and start it. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Contemplation, you can stop. And then start. And so if we learn to contemplate, contemplate, you know, what the Buddha was talking about, suffering, you know, this thing that happens to all of us, and yet how many of us actually ever really come to terms with it? Kind of contemplate suffering. And if we start to contemplate suffering, well then you say, actually, the suffering is not the way it appears to be. When you really start to contemplate, we've got restraint of the mind, and we've got interest, we've got patience, maybe we start to see the point of the spiritual training for ourselves, not just as a belief because somebody much more together and capable than me has got it sorted out and told me about it, but we start to see for ourselves, oh, this suffering is a choice. Pain is not often, often not a choice. Pain is part of the package. If you get born, you're going to have pain, doesn't matter who you are, what nationality, what size, what shape, what gender... You know, what age, there's going to be pain. Even the Buddha, with his supreme collection of accumulated virtue, had pain. But he didn't have suffering from the point of his enlightenment onwards. When he had pain, there was just pain. There wasn't suffering. For us, there's pain. And then there's something else we do. What is it that we do? It's a good question. We can contemplate that. If we've internalized the principles of the spiritual life, then it doesn't matter what shape or size our obstruction comes up with. We're hopefully willing and able and equipped to meet it and to learn from it. Now, uh, as I've been pointing out, the um, part of the willingness to learn is the willingness to accept the struggles, to accept the frustrations, to accept the limitations. Some stories around about the spiritual life, you know, being all about love and light and and, and, purveyors of that particular form of spirituality 
probably fairly successful, but I'm not sure, well, I am sure, actually, that it doesn't take you very far. Uh, you may have a lot of pleasure and a lot of pain, but it's not going to stop you from suffering. You have a lot of happiness, but it's not going to stop you from suffering. Yeah. What the Buddha realised was there is a way to stop suffering, and that is to train ourselves with the skills so that at the moment that suffering arises, we can be there for it. Yeah. Now, in the beginning, it's, pro- it's afterwards. Mm. We've been suffering for a while, and, and then we, we realise that running away from suffering isn't working, and blaming other people for suffering isn't working, so we hopefully get the message, and we turn around and say, well, I'm going to look at it, and then we maybe help, we can untangle it and, and come to terms, and we learn something about the suffering, you know. But as uh, the longer we train, the quicker we get in being able to meet it at the time it arises. Yeah. At the moment that it arises, we're there for it. And so this is also part of the training too. Not to get rid of the suffering. That's tempting to approach with the idea that, you know, to rate our spiritual development in terms of how much suffering am I overcoming? Yeah. Am I getting rid of my suffering? Well, in some ways this journey increases the suffering. But what hopefully decreases, if we're training skillfully, if we're internalising the principles, is what decreases is the resistance to the suffering. What increases is the willingness, the willingness to meet it without complaining, without resistance, without struggling, say, yes, it's like this, yes, it hurts. But do we have to judge it? Do we have to contract around it? Or can we actually develop the skill of expanding our awareness, feeling for, sensing, visualising, imagining some space around this pain so we've got space to investigate it, to use this intelligence that we've got to investigate and come to see for say, there's the cause, there's the effect, and it's not an obligation. To cling is not an obligation, it's a choice. It's a choice we happen to exercise compulsively, unfortunately, through our lack of good education. But we can do something about it. So Ajahn Chah's uh, encouragement in in this business was uh, he he was great on community life. He was a great advocate of community living as as a superb context for spiritual training and he used to talk about how uh, you know, pebbles in a stream, they might start off with all sorts of sharp edges, and, but as they're rolled around, as they bang up against the other pebbles, they get rounded off and smooth and become rather beautiful and nice to hold. And he's talking about, you know, talking about monks and nuns in this situation, living in spiritual community where, yes, we are always knocking up against each other, irritating each other and banging to each other's sharp edges. But if we've got some of these skills down, if we've got kindness, if we've got patience, if we've got forgiveness, if we're developing the ability to exercise these skills, then our sharp edges slowly but surely get rounded off. Mm. And then we can fit in anywhere. Somebody who's actually a blessing in the world. So it's not necessarily easy Um, and again you listen to what the great teachers talk about the Buddha himself and all the great teachers they talk about the 
the, uh, the struggles that they go to. But these, these should be seen as noble struggles. Mm. Yeah. The struggle to, to realize the potential for limitless wisdom and limitless compassion, that's a noble form of struggle. Yeah. Whatever we do in life, we're going to struggle. Yeah, you struggle to get food. You know, struggle to exercise and stay healthy. As you get older, it becomes more of a struggle. And relationships can be maintaining relationships, you know, friendships, and dealing with misunderstanding. So there's a lot of life that is just going to be a struggle anyway. Well, if we approach these struggles with the appreciation for what they can teach us about our habits of clinging, if that's how we approach the struggles, well then, yes, as I was saying, it's a noble struggle. And you know, part of us, part of us wants to embrace it. That sounds weird from one perspective. From the perspective of the addicted personality, the deluded personality, the idea of embracing suffering sounds crazy. You know, I just want to get out of this. I don't want to just, you know, wear some weed or something that gives you know, get a break from all this. Uh, you know, open a bottle of Foster's or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's our addiction to distraction. There's plenty of that around on all sorts of levels. But presumably, all of us have gone well past that, and and have at least some sense of how we want to embrace the struggle. Yeah, the struggle is the conscious struggle. Is where we get the strength and where we deepen to find the understanding we're looking for. Why is it that our world feels so cramped and so constricted and so obstructed? It's because of our habits of clinging. This me that's going on, I can't stand this. What is that me? What is that me? That me is a construction that we've imposed on awareness. We've imposed that on consciousness. We've imposed that limitation habitually, compulsively, for a long period of time until it appears like a solid me and a solid, contracted, limited world that I'm living in and I can't handle it. There's not enough space in this world. Well, let go. (laughs) Open up, expand. Which was, of course, the Buddha's realisation. The Buddha's realisation was free from all clinging, was free from all limitation. The Buddha's awareness was able to accommodate all experience, agreeable and disagreeable. Any experience you could imagine could be accommodated in the Buddha's consciousness. But for us, we have this contracted, limited feeling all the time, but there's something we can do about it. If we're internalizing these principles and really giving ourselves with interest, and not just following somebody else's stories, but with interest in finding our own way, uh, then there's something we can do about it. I was um, recently visiting uh, Chitter's Monastery in West Sussex and having a, uh, well, several very nice, uh, really pleasing conversations with Ajahn Suchito, who we've lived together for many years, known each other for many, many years, and still sometimes things come up in conversation which we've just never shared before or talked about ever. And one of the things that came up with this time when I was down there was something that our teacher Ajahn Chah said when he'd been to visit England and America and he went back to Thailand and he was talking to one of our Thai supporters when he went back, somebody who I know, and they later reported to me how Ajahn Chah was a bit concerned about the Sangha developing 
in the West. And he said, they've, you know, they've got intelligence, they've got so much, they've got the wisdom teachings, they've got so much going for them, but he said, they're not going to have to go without anything. You know, there's, a, there's a Thai expression, which means if you don't go without, means like to make a sacrifice. If, you don't, if you're not going without, getting your own way, there's no training, there's no development. And Ajahn Chah was just acutely aware of the affluence in general in the West and the generosity of the people uh, always been impressive and Ajahn Chah was concerned that his monks and nuns wouldn't develop because they're not going to have to go without anything and anyway in sharing this with Ajahn Chah Ajahn, Ajahn Sujito Ajahn Sujito doesn't speak Thai so it, it was a nice thing to just share this little thing with him and talk it over and he was just smiling at the at the beauty of of that teaching and and that was, just, that was a very nice thing to share because I'm aware there's a lot of people I would tell them that, and they wouldn't smile. They'd say, oh, who wants to hear that? You know, boring stuff. <laughs> who wants to go without? You know, everybody likes getting their own way. Well, of course, the deluded personality, the addicted personality, loves getting its own way. But that part of us which is going for refuge to reality, that part of us that wants to accord with reality, loves that, you know, sees that, recognises that truth. Yeah. And hearing such teachings, such as the blessings of having such people around, is the the encouragement it gives us to submit ourselves with more commitment into the training. So the effort that's required uh, at whatever stage of the training we're at uh, and to be focused on not getting necessarily not measuring our practice in terms of, you know, is the suffering disappearing, but measuring our practice in terms of, is there an increased willingness to meet suffering when it comes to us? Of course, I don't like suffering. Of course, me and my way loves gratification. But there's another part of us that knows that it just doesn't work. Gratification is not the same thing as contentment. And gratification is like you've got a, you know, you've got a wound and it's, it's healing and it starts itching. You scratch it, gratification. But then you get affected again. It starts healing and it gets itchy. That's part of the healing. Yeah. Right? We all know that. So scratch it. Gratification. Get infected again. What makes the difference? What makes the difference is understanding. Understanding the training, understanding the process, understanding the reality that if you scratch it, you risk further infection. So then you, with understanding, you exercise restraint. It's not just blind repression or judgment. So of course I want to scratch that, of course. Perfectly understandable. But am I going to do it? No. Because you understand. And that's the benefit. And so the benefit of the spiritual training, of course, it's not just a matter of pushing down our desires to thump somebody when they make us angry or to overeat on sugar and caffeine and whatever else is not good for us. Uh, you know, it's not just denying those desires, but it's studying the phenomena of desire. It's, it's, it's familiarizing ourselves with the training skills you know, listen to the adepts, the spiritual adepts, read the books, 
look at YouTube if that's what you like doing. Listen to Dhamma talks. Go on retreats. Familiarize ourselves with adepts, people who are already skilled, until... Until we learn, we start to learn, we start to learn in the body, and not just in our heads. You know, we can learn about in our heads, that's very easy. Yeah. But learning it in the body, that's profoundly different. That's where it takes the repetition, it takes the effort, over and over again. I'm talking to a guest in the monastery recently who was a ballet dancer, and we were kind of joking about what happens when you tell your teacher you didn't turn up because you didn't want to get up in the morning. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> You don't become a you know, quality ballet dancer unless you go through the rigours of training. You don't, uh, Yehudi Menuhin didn't become one of the world's greatest violinists. You know, he wasn't just born that way. You know, he went through the training. You know, I remember when I was about 20, I had a, an LP of Yehudi Menuhin and Ravi Shankar, two adepts who were great friends and making this, this beautiful music. The beauty of an adept. Or more locally, Johnny Wilkinson. Those of you who know Johnny Wilkinson, you know, that goal, that drop goal he kicked in Sydney when he beat the Australians in, what was it, 2003? Was it, I didn't put it 2003, that drop goal that won the Rugby World Cup. He didn't just do that because he stood there thinking, should I kick this goal? Johnny Wilkinson had kicked so many goals for so many years such a serious goal kicker that when the ball came to him 20 seconds before the end of the game he just did it and it went over perfect this perfect beautiful drop goal he wasn't thinking Johnny Wilkinson wasn't thinking when he did that drop goal it was so learned in his body well we've got to do the same thing with spiritual training We've got to surrender ourselves to the training over and over and over again. Not complaining about, oh, I don't want to get up in the morning, or this is tedious, or I don't see the results of my practice. No, just, just begin again and submitting it. Not looking for results even. You know, just giving ourselves into it until we've really learnt it in the body. And then, who knows, life just hits us with something. And instead of going to stories... Maybe letting go happens. And we didn't do it. It wasn't a strategy. But somehow, mysteriously, the training helped. So wherever we are in the training, um, again, to remember that uh, there are, of course, times when it's very inspiring and beautiful and enlivening and maybe you you get bliss out of your practice as well but there will be other times when it just feels so bone breaking and so difficult again to quote Ajahn Chah there was something he said which at the time I remember I really didn't like hearing and in fact it took me a very long time to get he said when you're doing the real practice it's like you're hanging out with your friends you know having a good time and the Buddha comes along and says okay break it up that's it. Oh, come on, you know, does it have to be that bad? <laughs> well, actually, he wasn't, you know, judging having friends. I mean, you know, the Buddha said spiritual companionship is, is the whole thing. It's you know, essential. He wasn't talking about having friends. Friendship is, 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 is essential and beautiful. But what he was talking about was the feeling we have when we have to let go of 
what we have to let go of. You know, those things that we really don't want to let go of, like me and my way. You know, we feel so justified in, in our whinging and whining about things not being how I want them to be. You know? Well, when we, if we learn how to reflect wisely, we can listen to that whinging and whining and the tendency to want to blame others and criticise and judge. We listen to it, but we've got some space around it now. I say, that's not, a, that's not an obligation. We don't have to do that. We can inhibit that skillfully, not neurotically, but skillfully inhibit the tendency to always be following impulses and following the movement uh, of the mind or sending the energy out through our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, or following the world. You know, we can pull back and investigate and look at it and say, we get interested in going against our compulsive tendencies. You know, like some people are just such speed freaks. You know, they're running around like chickens with their head chopped off. They're just, you know, disturbing everybody and stirring everything up. And you know, from a practice perspective, if you're one of those kind of characters, well, you get interested in slowing down. So you want to slow down. So, yeah, I'm a speed freak. Actually, I'm going to learn... Because you want to. You realise when you, when you start to recognise our compulsive tendencies and how we throw ourselves out of balance by following them, we want to restrain ourselves. Yeah. Or those who are compulsively slow coaches. You know, some people are just such slow coaches. You know, the mindfully washing the dishes. <laughs> Everybody else is standing there and trying to restrain having an opinion about this mindful... Dishwasher, washer upper. Well, if you're one of those slow coaches <laughs> and you're reflecting, aren't you? you say, well, actually, I'm going to encourage myself to speed up. Yeah. When we start to get a feeling for this compulsive behaviour that we can easily get caught up in, we want to go against it. And yes, it can be very difficult. But on another level, we grow a certain sort of inner strength and confidence that's sustainable that we can rely on and that will protect us and support us as we go forward in our practice. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.